Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas was written by David Mitchell and was published in 2004. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2012, was directed by Tom Tykwers and the Wachowskis, which I say because it sounds like a band. <laughs> it does sound like a band. <laughs> so um, I want to give a shout out here. This is a patron requested episode. So we would love to thank Jeffrey Little mm-hmm. for requesting this episode. He is a wonderful patron of ours and um, really wanted us to do this episode. And he actually sent us some thoughts. He did like a little mini review yeah, of the book yeah. and movie. So we'll read a, a snippet from that at the end of the episode, and then we're going to post the entire review on our Patreon page, and that'll be available for everyone to see. So definitely go and check that out, because uh, that was really exciting. So Yeah, it was. He, he It's very well written, and he has a lot of good thoughts, some of which we'll be summarizing at the end of the episode. But if you want the full thing, check it out there. Yeah. But right now... We have to give our thoughts. We do. Because we have so many. We have so many. On this very, very dense book. That is the best word to describe the book. Oh, yeah. Is dense. I mean, it's 500 pages, so it's already decently beefy. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it has, I mean, so it's, it's six stories. Yes. And they're almost like six short stories. Yeah. But I mean, each short story is very in itself, like has as much story as potentially a whole novel yeah i would call them more like novellas yeah they, they feel that way anyway they all feel very substantial yeah uh so yeah so there's a lot to discuss this episode and i think first we have to kind of do something a little different than what we usually do yeah i think we have to talk about the movie and how the movie is set up versus the book because it, it, it's kind of changing how we're going to talk about them, I think. Yeah. So first, let's talk about the book structure a little bit. So the way the book plays out is that there are essentially six stories, but they're not all told all at once. So we start out with the first story and then it ends like halfway through it. Abruptly, yeah. Abruptly. Like you you know that it, you're like, wait, what happened to this? Like it mm-hmm. just ends mid-sentence and then it goes to the next part. And then that part ends and then it goes to the next part and it does so until it gets to the sixth part. And then the sixth part is a complete story. Yeah. So it's the whole thing. It doesn't cut it out, cut it midway. And it also is jumping forward in time. So the first story starts in the 1800s and then the next story picks up in like the 1930s. Yeah. And it's also and then the next is like the 1970s and modern day then the 21 whatever mm-hmm. future than the super future yeah and each story is kind of within the next story yeah so the first story is a journal mm-hmm. and then in the next story which is a series of letters the writer talks about finding that journal and reading it yeah and then the next story is that character reading the letters from the second story yeah and they all end part way through the story kind of abruptly until mm-hmm. The middle portion, which is that complete most future story, and then it reverses back. It reverses in order and does the last half of the stories until you're back at the beginning. So it's super different. Yeah. And really interesting. It is very interesting. There's pros and cons to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, things I like, things I don't. But the structure is very unique in that sense. Intricate 
fascinating. It's been compared to like a Russian nesting doll. Yeah. Where the stories are like within another story kind Mm -hmm. of. But also this like having technique is really interesting as well. So the movie does not do that. And I get why, because they don't want you to spend all this time with a character, cut it in half and then move on. Because by the time you would get back to that character, you would kind of forget what's even happening, I think. Yeah. Uh, so it, it started off really jumbled at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. Jumping around. And I was like, OK, I get this. We're establishing that there's six narratives so that, you know, when we're at the first six one. Six main characters. And, yeah, yeah. We're not thinking that it's only this story or something. Yeah. Um, but then that frenetic energy of cutting between stories rarely ever lets up no i think the introductions to the stories are probably the longest i would agree uninterrupted there's more time Mm -hmm. yeah so like you get like 10 minutes maybe in each story like 10 minutes in the first story and then jump to the next one 10 minutes jump to the next jump to the next jump to the next yeah maybe even less than 10 minutes to be honest Yeah, and then it only gets shorter from there. Yeah. And so what you get is this frenetic, haphazard jumbling of six different stories with six different narratives Mm -hmm. that are just so interwoven that it almost becomes impossible to talk about plot-wise from the movie perspective. No, and... Adding to this problem is the fact that um, the actors in this movie play multiple parts. So like one character will play, you know, one character in the 1930s and then they'll play like a different person in like the early 2000s. And so you keep seeing the same faces. So it adds to your confusion. And you're like, wait, what? Wait, what time is this? Like, what's happening? And actually, we consulted my sister, Annette, (laughs) on this because she has only seen the movie. Because we were like, would you understand, like, what's happening in terms of, like, all these separate stories coming together if you hadn't read the book? And when we talked to her about it, she was like, yeah, I was very confused. I kind of got, like, the overall, like, narrative function and like the theme of the movie but i had no idea what was going on yeah for sure and then there's also the problem of like and i think we'll probably talk about it a little more later when we're talking about themes but by having different actors play different parts you're creating a connection between those characters when really i don't think there was supposed to be any so Mm -hmm. like it just kind of like creates a more complicated interwoven issue yeah but Really, it's like the pacing of this movie and how there isn't really any kind of like a ebb and a flow to like the action or there's no slowdown. The buildups are there, but it never really like, I don't know, releases, I guess. Yeah. Because of the frenetic energy Mm -hmm. of all the cuts and things chopped together. And... It really feels like a three, and this is a three-hour movie. Yes, it it is three hours. Yeah, it feels like a three-hour music video. (laughs) And what I mean by that is like, like in a music video, or a lot of music videos, um, it cuts back and forth between like different locations and and settings and outfits. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And (laughs) But like with no real, like there were some smart cuts. Yeah. 
between stories in this way, like some clever like jokes or like funny ideas. But a lot of the cutting felt very like. Whatever. Yeah. No rhyme or reason to why are we cutting between these stories? Yeah. Between these characters in these moments. Sometimes there was like a a common buildup in a scene. But ultimately, half the time, I'm like, why are we jumping back and forth between these? Yeah. And I found, too, we would often like start with one character and then it would like switch to another story, but only hold on that for like 15 seconds and then switch to another story. Yeah. So there was like in the transition between one story and another, there was like 15 seconds of like a separate story and it wasn't connected to it at all. No. Yeah. And in fact, like a lot of the exciting parts of the story all that tension that's being built up keeps being broken when we jump to another story. Yeah. And they a lot of times try to pair like two exciting parts with each other. So you're at least jumping back and forth between those parts. Yeah. But it's still I I, I coined a term when writing my notes. <laughs> I'm calling it the undercut away because hmm. they're like undercutting the, the scene, the tension by cutting away ah, to something else. I so like it. So it's the undercut away. Nice. And <laughs> but, <laughs> but it did that so many times that were so frustrating because sometimes you would be engaged in a scene. Yeah. And then you're like, God damn it. I don't want to see Adam's sick ass on this boat <laughs> again. I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to see him sweaty and just dying. Yes. You know, so there's like so many moments of that and just ultimately felt like a music video where it felt like they had these parts and they were just figuring out the edit how they fit later and how they fit and just where they jumped between Mm -hmm. and ultimately it was like so it also it all felt so like figured out on the fly and like a lot of it not intentional another thing worth mentioning is that the wachowskis directed three stories And then the other director directed the other three, which may add to the fragmented feeling. Yeah. Because you have totally, I mean, people can co-direct all the time and that's fine. But when you have two different shooting locations, two different directing voices, it's definitely going to feel different. And the actors said how weird it was because they'd be on one set playing one character in one time period. And then the next day they'd be on another set in another time period and another character. And yeah, two separate shooting units. The Wachowskis directed uh, the first story and then the two future ones. Mm, okay. And then Tom Tykwer directed uh, the, the 1930s, 1970s, and modern day mm-hmm. stories. So three stories for each of them. And you can kind of feel the difference in ways, I think, in the directing styles. I think Tom Tykwer, I'm not familiar with his other stuff, but like a lot of his stuff feels a little more campy and fun. Mm, yes, I would ways. agree. Yeah. So, depending. The Wachowskis are a little more self-serious mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, they, they, bl- they all blend for the most part pretty well together, but there are some differences stylistically, I'd say. But yeah. Yeah, so totally weird way of making this movie as well yes but while we were watching it we just looked at each other and we we're like we have to go by the book plot line yeah because the movie is almost it it's almost incomprehensible i i'd say yeah it's very confusing i was confused i'm like i read the book i should know yeah and certain stories suffer more from that than others mm-hmm. but ultimately 
we felt we needed to say this at the beginning. We will be referring to the movie a decent bit. Yeah. But ultimately, so many plot lines are hard to follow and understand and know what the differences are that we'll probably be going along the thread of the book more and then referring to the movie sporadically. Yeah. And we're going to talk about each full story instead of talking about half of the story and then half of the next story. We're going to talk about just the full story. So we start off with the worst possible way to begin a novel (laughs) of this type, which is the Pacific (sighs) Journal of Adam, who is this idiot (laughs) on this ship. God, you really hate him, don't you? So we we're on like an unknown island. We know nothing. We're just like dumped into this world. And immediately the language is like super inaccessible. It's like him just like simpering in his journal being mm-hmm. like, mm, hmm, hmm, I am on this ship now, blah, 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 whatever, 1800s. <laughs> and I say that as someone who loves books written in the 1800s. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, but we're thrown into this world. It's very confusing and disorienting and... Very inaccessible. And I do want to mention that because I think a lot of people probably pick up this book and then never finish it solely because of this chapter. I know. When I started, I was like, God, I'm like, what are we getting ourselves into? Yeah. Because I could hardly because. So first of all, he's on this island and there's so much historical context to the island. Yeah. To the indigenous people on that island. To the white settlers, mm-hmm. to the the ship and what Adam is doing there. And it is a lot of it historically uh, accurate. Yes. In terms of this is a small island near New Zealand. Mm-hmm. The two indigenous tribes, one enslaved the other. Yeah. Uh, the Maori enslaved the... Moriori. Moriori. So yeah, the two tribes also have extremely similar names. <laughs> and you're just like, what... Is all of this, what am I reading? What is going on? Yeah. And it's it's way denser than it needs to be. It absolutely is. And we get so much history of this, these tribes, which is interesting. But ultimately, like, we could have maybe had a quicker summary of this. Yeah. And honestly, part of me would like to go back and reread this first chapter. Because yeah. by the time you get through... Like, you start to figure out, okay, I know the difference between the Maori and the Moriori. I Mm -hmm. kind of understand this town a little bit more. But when you start, nothing is spoon-fed to you. No. And part of me me admires that a little bit. Like, it really feels like you're reading a journal from the 1800s. Yeah. That isn't trying to explain things to a a reader Mm -hmm. because it's his journal. Yeah. So, like... I'm like, I appreciate that, but also it's just so inaccessible. And I think this would have been a better chapter to have once the author had sort of won our trust a little bit. I agree. Because. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people are like, listen, I don't have a lot of time. We're not alive (laughs) that long in the world. Uh, There's only so many books I can read. And. I mean, I'm of that same mindset sometimes. It's like, well, if this isn't working for me, there's plenty of other books I can read. Absolutely. So I think it turns off readers immediately. But anyway, getting into the plot, Adam is traveling on this ship. Yeah, back to San Francisco from Australia. He was doing a lawyer thing, and it doesn't really matter that much. He's like a notary or something. Yeah. No, he's not a notary. What is he? It's something legal, though, right? Yeah. And he's, he's like traveling with documents i think like a deed he needed signed yeah but 
they had to stop on this island because their ship got damaged in travel. And on the island, he meets uh, Henry Goose. Henry Goose. Who is a... A.K.A. the arsenic goose. (laughs) A crazy man uh, digging for teeth. And this is like how the book starts at the beginning. He comes across this man digging up cannibal teeth in the sand. And he's explaining how he's making a set of dentures to get back at someone who like made him upset and he's going to make them cannibal dentures but not tell them until later and then embarrass them publicly and then adam is like this seems like a man i can trust (laughs) (laughs) so they become friends and henry is very nice to him yeah but he's also super racist oh yeah and race is definitely a factor in this story in terms of the indigenous people of the island, how they're treated. Yeah. Um, and it gives you a lot of, like, historical context, but ultimately, like, it's kind of like, okay, I get this is a theme, but what are we saying here? What's the point of what's going on? Yeah. Not much. So they're they're traveling on this boat, and Henry's with him, and Henry is trying to cure Adam of Adam's mysterious ailment, and he's clearly giving him either some type of poison or cocaine, maybe both. Maybe both. (laughs) (laughs) And Adam is like, oh, my dear friend uh, who is helping me. Thank you so much. And by the way, when we cut, we cut around here halfway through the story. Yeah. Well, well, not quite, but like in the next story, when the next character is reading these journals, he makes a comment about like, this idiot is too dumb to know that this doctor is poisoning him. (laughs) And it was a really funny and a comment because I hadn't even realized it at that point. Yeah. But so he's being poisoned by this doctor on this ship. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Adam discovers a stowaway on the ship. Yeah. A runaway slave who he had a weird encounter with on the island. He saw him being beaten and uh, his name is Atua. And he like begs Adam to like plead his case to the captain and let him work on the ship. And he's trying he's trying to flee because he was enslaved. Yeah. And it's so funny because at this point when he finds the stowaway, I'm like, ooh, now we're in the plot. They're on this ship. (laughs) There's a stowaway. Only Adam knows about him like it's dangerous. And then it is so quickly resolved. Yeah. Adam goes to the captain. He's like, hey, this guy can work for you. And the guy's like, yeah, let me show you. And he like does a bunch of ship stuff. And the captain, he like Super Mario's <laughs> up the the mast and like drops the the sails. And the captain's like, okay. Cool. And then Adam's like, okay, cool. I can go back to being sick now. <laughs> he is sick for so long and it's so boring. Especially in the movie. I know. The movie is just him like sweating on a cot for like the whole movie. The whole movie. And Tom Hanks plays... The evil Dr. Goose. The super creepy dentist. And uh, I, I swear to God, he took those teeth from the beach and just stuffed them into his mouth because <laughs> he has at least 50 teeth in his mouth. He has so many teeth. He's like, I have twice as many teeth as a normal man. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, he is appropriately creepy. Yeah. But so Tom Hanks plays a villain in this story. Yeah. And we'll kind of be keeping note of like who's villains in when and where. Yeah. Uh, so and... Then what happens? In the book, they stop at an island. Yeah, and there's like these really racist and problematic missionaries, which I appreciate the context for that. I do too. I like getting more insight because, I mean, on the first island, it was a lot about how 
the indigenous people were enslaving each other. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I'm like, it happens. It happens, of course. But maybe don't draw attention to that when most often it is white people doing it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so this story was like about like this, uh, religious group on the Island that was like educating the native people, but also enslaving them. Yeah. And one part that was super interesting was because they don't really have a currency, as a means, like they don't have capitalism yeah. essentially on this island, and they don't care about money or understand it, so they got them to start smoking, yeah, to get them addicted to tobacco, so that then they would work, so they to would earn money to earn money and tobacco, yeah, like that's how they were forcing capitalism on these indigenous people, and I'm like, wow, wow. <laughs> It was super interesting and just horrible. Yeah, and probably historically accurate. Oh, I'm sure. This book seemed very well researched in a lot of ways. So Yeah, so this section was interesting. This is the second half of this story. Yeah. And I definitely like the second half more than the first, for sure. Um, there's like a sad scene where in the book where this uh, boy that works on the ship ends up being like raped a lot by another ship yeah. person. And then he kills himself, which is really sad and Adam just kind of like he's upset about it but then he kind of like moves on because he's dying so I don't know this felt like really weirdly inserted I know it was very odd and it like weirdly connects to events in the very last story yeah but once again like that those events don't really tie into anything either it's just like why is this happening yeah it's like humans are shitty okay moving on yeah I didn't get anything also so many of the names of the people on the boat were thrown around, but like never well established. So I never had any idea who was who. I know. Or anything. So at this point, Adam is real fucking sick. And he's basically Goose is giving him the last of the poison when yeah. he finally realizes mm-hmm. what's going on. He's like, oh, no. And Goose is like, mm. I'm going to reveal to you everything. And then he like takes all of his stuff Mm -hmm. and leaves. And luckily, uh, Atua, Atua, the slave that he helped bargain, Mm -hmm. uh, ship passage for finds him. And in the movie, there's a whole like fight scene. Yeah. Between Atua and Tom Hanks, (laughs) (laughs) which is so absurd because this man we watched, like American Ninja Warrior, I up, know, up a ship mast, and Tom old old ass Tom Hanks is like in a fist fight with him, and I'm like, okay, Tom Hanks would not win. No, he would get decked once, lose half of his teeth, yeah, and then be be done. <laughs> but he rescues him and then brings him back to his family. And in both the book and the movie, the movie's a little more dramatic. But Adam is like. I have learned now because a slave saved me that I'm going to like oppose slavery now. Yeah. I'm a good white person. (laughs) And in the movie, he like talks to his father-in-law. It's like a random third act father-in-law. Yeah. And burns a document that we've never seen before. That seems racist, apparently. (laughs) And he's like, I'm going to be good now. Yeah. But I will say I did like more of the motivation of him going back to see his wife. Yeah. And that being like. Because I don't know, in the book, he's just like, yeah, I'm married. But in the movie, it's like, as he's dying, he's like, I'll never get to hold my sweet whatever. Whatever her name whoever, is. Whatever her name is in my arms. <laughs> I'm too sick. I can't remember. <laughs> but that's basically the whole first story. And that book ends the book. Yeah. It starts the beginning 
the very first chapter and that's the last chapter as well. Yes. So I was not a fan. I, I know it was absolutely my least favorite of the stories. Yeah. At least the second half was better once we were on a boat mm-hmm. and like a much more focused narrative. But the second story is about Robert uh, Frobisher, I think is his last name. Yeah. Um, and he is a musician and he has this crazy idea to go find this composer that's like retired because he's dying of syphilis and <laughs> help him like compose again. So yeah. he does. Yeah. Robert is like. He's kind of a funny character. He's like very conniving and like evading uh, a bunch of debt collectors yeah. that he owes. He's a rogue. Yeah. And he's just kind of he's a musician, but he doesn't he's not like doesn't have a job or anything. And he's just kind of like meandering around. But like yeah. this is his like kind of scheme mm-hmm. is to go become this guy's like right hand assistant to compose again. Yeah. And he travels all the way up to Bruges. And meets him and actually lands the job. Yeah. And this is told through a series of letters that he's writing to Sixsmith, who is his former lover and maybe still his lover in his heart. But um, and Sixsmith is a man. Yes. Just to, yeah. So yeah. we're led to believe um, that Robert is bisexual because he has sex with many people. <laughs> Robert just wants to bang anything that moves. I love it. I do too. I'm like so here for it. Like yeah. there are so many like moral lines that he crosses or threatens to cross in the story, but I'm like, okay. <laughs> Speaking of moral lines, he starts sleeping with the composer's wife. Yep. Um, Almost immediately. Yeah. She's an older woman, uh, but is just like, I love she just immediately is hitting on him. Yeah. And then one day just walks into his bedroom, disrobes, and he's, he's like, like, all right. All right. Yeah, let's, let's do, do this. It. And we said before, but he finds Adam's journal, only half of it, and is basically like, oh, shit, I need to find the rest of this book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so something worth mentioning is in this story, um, so we this is our first like real introduction to Halle Berry as a character. She plays the wife. Yeah. And she's playing, like, a white Jewish woman. Yeah. So that's something. And it's so weird because he starts having sex with her. Yeah. And then she is gone in the from movie. the story. In the yeah. movie, yeah. Yeah, she just she disappears. Just disappears. And I'm like, where is she? Like, she doesn't really play that big of a role in the book. No. But she's there. Yeah. She's, like, a continued presence And in the movie, after he bangs her, she's just nowhere. Yeah, she doesn't appear again. It was really weird. And also hard to recognize because the moves around so fast. And you're like, wait, oh, okay, I guess we never saw her again. Yeah, suddenly you're just like, oh, wait, what happened to her? Yeah. There's also a daughter in the book who is not in the movie at all. Her Mm -hmm. name is Eva. And I, I loved her character. She's just super jaded she's a teenager she's 17 yeah she's just really jaded and mean she hates robert hates robert but they have a lot of great like they have so much like uh sexual tension between them yeah where she's just constantly talking shit on him and always like she always gets one over on she him. does and yeah. i love that he's always the one left being like uh <laughs> she like rides away there's this like subplot in the book which i wasn't really a fan of where it seems like she's being nicer to him and he thinks she's in love with him. Yeah. And I guess it's just sad because it, it felt like maybe he deluded himself into thinking he loved her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he realizes that she loved someone else the whole time. It's sort of devastating yeah. for him in some ways, but in others not. I don't know. 
Yeah, and also by that point in the story, he's unraveled quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, there's a whole scene, a confrontation, where Eva sees him after a long absence, and she's like, you're not well. Yeah. And so I think we're led to believe that uh, Robert has some emotional, mental uh, problems yeah. that he's not dealing with, mm-hmm. and that uh, it's uh, it's hard to state, like, how extreme they are. Yeah, because he's writing letters, so we don't really know what's happening. Yeah. It's from his perspective only. And this is definitely a theme of Cloud Atlas as a whole, is the uh, unreliable narrator to an extent. And this is one of those instances. So it is hard to tell, like, is his infatuation with Eva, did she kind of, like... Lead him on? Yeah, or is he just very, like... Was he infatuated because he's kind of crazy? Mm-hmm. Uncertain. He, his partnership with Ayers, the composer, disintegrates because Ayers wants to claim credit for the symphony that Robert is writing, which he calls the Cloud Atlas Sextet. Yeah. And the structure of the symphony is actually the structure of the novel, where he talks about having um, solos that are like cut off and interrupted by another solo, mm-hmm. kind of like the book does. Um, in the movie... It's like Ayers, the composer, actually threatens to out his homosexuality, which is not brought up at all in the book. No. And like Ayers, Ayers in the book, like is aware of his like, I think. Like he owes money and things and he like. Yeah. And he's sleeping with his wife. Yeah. Yeah. And threatens to like discredit him that way. It's very weird because like the book alludes to the fact that there may be something between Ayers and Mm -hmm. because. The very end of the first part ends with uh, Ayers' wife telling Robert that Ayers is in love with him. Or I mean, Ayers, she just Ayers loves, loves him. him. Ayers yeah. loves him. But, like, the fact that that's where the story cuts off makes you, made me wonder, like, how does she mean that? Does she mean, like, romantically? Yeah. And there is a really interesting dynamic. This was honestly one of my favorite stories. Yeah, I liked it a lot, too. Because it's such a good setup. It's so interesting, like... Uh, Robert showing up to this house mm-hmm. under like lies in yeah. terms of how he got there, him sleeping with Ayers' wife, and then also the sexual tension with the daughter. Mm-hmm. And then also just like the mentor, men, men, what's the other? Mentee. Mentee uh, kind of friction between like who's actually creating the works. Yeah. Like is Robert really actually the one doing the composing and mm-hmm. Ayers is just taking credit for it. It felt like very whiplash, like yeah. the movie. Yeah. And I love that movie. <laughs> so it felt like whiplash, but with way more like sex and like sexual tension. Yeah. And I don't know. I think it's just a wonderful setup for a story. And I really enjoyed it. It was sad though at the end because it was Robert kind of goes through this decline after he and Ayers part. He, is clearly ill in some way, physically. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like he's kind of like literally burning himself out, like until he's exhausted. Yeah. And then the final letter we get is actually um, him telling Sixsmith, his former lover, that he killed himself. Yeah. And it's really sad. In the movie, it's much more dramatic. Like Sixsmith finds him dead and is like weeping over his body, which I was like, this is a lot. It was. I was like, this is too much. And like very mean to have Sixsmith arrive. Like he heard the gunshot. Yeah. Like, did we need that? Like, come on. Yeah. It was very overdramatic. But Mm -hmm. overall, I just thought the story setup was so interesting. Yeah. And each story in this series has a very different vibes. 
but I really loved this kind of like contained story in this house with music as a very prominent theme. Yeah. The rivalry, the the, the sex and the sexual tension, the mm-hmm. lies. Yes. It's very interesting. And Robert being this like kind of trickster, clever character. Yeah. 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 For sure. Just a lot of good things in this one. Let's talk about Louisa Ray. Yes. Louisa Ray is a reporter yes. in the 1970s. If we're going to talk about vibes, this has a very uh, mystery novel, pulp yeah. kind of paperback fiction type style to it. Yeah, it gets real wild, especially near the end, like in the book with like so many like plots, like explosions and deaths and like it, it, it went way farther than I was expecting. Yeah. Uh, but Lu- it starts off with Louisa meeting Sixsmith Sixsmith mm-hmm. as an older man. Yeah. And they get stuck in an elevator together and Sixsmith finds out she's a reporter. He knew her who her father was because he was a famous reporter. Yeah. And he and, and he is a scientist scientist who helped build this uh, nuclear power plant off the coast mm-hmm. of L.A. And but there's secrets and there's mystery and things that he needs to get off his chest and and tell Louisa. He doesn't get a chance to tell her in the elevator, but he's like, I got to tell her about it. And we find out that, of course, the nuclear power plant is not safe. Yeah. And Sixsmith was the only scientist not to be bribed or coerced into saying that it was safe. And now they're going to kill him. So mm-hmm. he has his report that uh, reports on the true findings of the power plant. And he like stows it somewhere safe, and then he is killed. Yes. <laughs> and so thus begins Louisa's uh, snooping. This espionage. Lots of snooping. Lots of snooping. This espionage-filled story of her, like, tracking people down, like, going to the power plant to, like, snoop. Yeah. And she eventually meets uh, Sax, another scientist who had been bribed Mm -hmm. but is obviously it's tearing him up inside yeah he feels some regret and also louisa is kind of hot so he's like "Mm, maybe i'll tell you my secrets (laughs) also it's tom hanks in a it's tom hanks terrible wig yeah awful horrendous wig (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah so because it's halle berry he's like "Mm, i'll tell you so he Gets her a copy of the report. It's in her car. Yeah, she's she's driving back from the, the power plant facility. And on her way back, she gets attacked by the assassin. Yes. And forced off the bridge she's crossing and into the water. Yeah. And is she dead? Is she not? This is where the book cut off. It is where the book cut off. I do want to say that this section really in the movie talks a lot about the idea of reincarnation. Yeah, it does. Because uh, Tom Hanks and Halle Berry's characters in this portion, Tom Hanks anyway, is saying like, I feel drawn to you. I feel like I know you, that Mm -hmm. I can trust you. And we also, we haven't been mentioning this, but in each main character in each story has a shooting star or comet shaped birthmark somewhere on their body. Yeah. And I don't know how, I, I didn't... It's funny because, like, this is such a strong theme in the book, this reincarnation idea. But ultimately, I kind of don't love it because I don't quite get the significance. Mm -hmm. Because none of the characters feel that similar. No. Like, they all, I don't know, a lot of, there are a lot of shared themes 
one of them is like the fight against like larger powers. Yes. Uh, which is in a, most of the stories, but is kind of lacking in the last one and especially the first one. Yeah. Like it's kind of hard. I would to say oppression too is a theme. Oppression. Yeah. I guess mm-hmm. just in the first story, Adam's not really fighting any oppression. No. Like, He's just observing it. Yeah. So, you know, it's kind of like there's no real consistent thread between character traits or quite what they're going through or anything like that. Yeah. Also, the movie, and I looked this up, so the movie clearly is trying to say that what each character that the actor portrays mm-hmm. is that person's soul reincarnating in each timeline. That's what... So Tom Hanks is Tom Hanks, like the soul of Tom Hanks is every Tom <laughs> Hanks character in each timeline. <laughs> So and that was like a conscious choice on the part of the Wachowskis is each actor portrays like that soul throughout time. See, that doesn't make any sense to me. It does not. But that's what they were going for because they were like, Tom Hanks has this progression from like evil killer to like kind of okay person. And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't make sense because in the first story, he's trying to like poison. In the second story, he's just like. A hotel clerk? Who's shitty. Yeah. And then in the third one, he literally murders someone. Or, I'm no, sorry. He's in the good. third one, he's good. Yeah. But then in the fourth one, he murders someone. Yeah. And I'm like, why did he go from good to murdering? Yeah. And then in the fifth one, he's just like an actor. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the last one, he's like... Fine. Not great, but like good enough. <laughs> yeah. And this was supposed to be like... They talk about in interviews the the soul's progression. Yeah. And it there isn't... There is not... A soul's progression. Just want to say. Yeah, no. And I mean, I love that idea. Yeah. But I just don't think it works within the framework of this story. And maybe they could have done it with one character, but not with like six. No. Because we can't piece it together. It's all out of order. We have no idea what's happening. Well, and so many of the other actors like um, are prominent in some stories, but then are just like a background cameo in others. Oh, yeah. Like in the fifth story... Halle Berry is like an old Asian man. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. So it's like, what is that really Halle Berry's soul? Like, come on. Yeah. Is that her progression? <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah, it just does not work. Like, I'd love it if it did work, but. I like the idea of it. I do too. And I love the idea like, oh, through different lifetimes, Tom Hanks goes from being super shit yeah. to like a good guy. But that flow is totally not consistent at all. No. It just happens to be bad at the beginning and good at the end. I agree. So, yeah. And it just makes it confusing. It makes it very confusing. Absolutely. Talking about confusing, let's go back to Louisa. And after she gets almost killed and pulls herself out of the ocean and almost drowning, she's like, I know what I should do. I should go back to my apartment. (laughs) Yeah. In both versions. Yeah. She's like, I was almost killed. Better not say anything. I'm not going to tell anyone, and I'm just going to go back to living my life. In the book, she, like, goes back to her job. She's visiting her mom. She's just, like, living her life. And I'm like, you almost got killed. Like, you need to be on the run right now. Like, what what is happening? Yeah, and she makes even, like, a vague allusion to, like, oh, I should stay low. But then that lasts, like, a a hot second. (laughs) Like, she visits her mom, and that was, like, her idea of staying low. Oh, my God. Uh, So... Where are we at this point? She... In the movie, yeah. she meets... And in the book, she eventually meets up with uh, Napier. 
Mm-hmm. who is the security officer for the power plant. And he basically, he knew her father, so he feels like he needs to help her. And his conscious, yeah. conscience has been bothering him as well. So they team up. And in the movie, they have <laughs> this ridiculous plan The first to catch the assassin. The first terrible plan of this movie, <laughs> where I don't even know what the... She's walking out in daylight. The assassin is following the her. The assassin's going to run her over, and right before he can... Napier Napier collides his car with the assassins. Yeah. And then it just turns into a shootout. I know. And I'm like, what was the plan here? I don't know. Because now both vehicles, like, you can't drive away. No. And Louisa is just in the street. Yeah. Like, unprotected. Yeah, it was so weird. I have a plan. Let's get into a gunfight with a trained assassin. (laughs) (laughs) That should go well. That'll go well. That seems like a logical plan. That's fine. Yeah. It turns into a whole chase scene. And yada, 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 they end up getting one over on the assassin mm-hmm. and getting out. And then they get the another copy of the report from Sig Smith's niece, niece who he was very close with. And mm-hmm. then they're able to publish that and bring the power plant down. Yeah, essentially. Mm-hmm. In the book, Napier en- ends up dying, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he was good. I, I liked know, him. I know, I felt bad. I, I really liked this portion because I felt like it was really leaning into the like detective story and like some of the plots were a little confusing, but I did like Louise as a character. I do think this story is the least suitable in both versions. I think in the book, splitting it in half when like we finally came back to this story, I was like, I forget everything. I'm like, Mm -hmm. because this story has a lot of like plot lines, a lot of characters. Yeah, a lot of names. A lot of names, motives. And by the time we got back to it, I'm like, "Ah, I forget a lot of this. Like, I can't really recall many people. Yeah. Like at one point, there was a character who only, she was name dropped like 30 times. And it was only at the end that I remembered that she was like, oh, this environmentalist person. I know. Same. Yeah. Because I like I was like, who is this? I cannot remember. Yeah. Uh, So I do think the book has that problem for sure. Yeah. And then the movie. I mean, I don't know how anyone could follow this plot line in the movie. I know. It's so suffers. It's so chopped up. Mm hmm. It's hard to even say what parts were kept intact for the book, what parts were changed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just really all over the place. Yeah, and you can't even keep track of what's happening and what she's investigating even. Like, that wasn't even clear. Yeah, so. yeah. So, uh, you know, a good story. I did enjoy it. Yeah. But it, it does suffer the most, I'd say. Let's move on to the unfortunate events of Timothy Cavendish or whatever this part's called. I don't think it's unfortunate. It's not. It's something <laughs> it's something more Britishy. Yeah. <laughs> so this section is supposed to be like kind of present day. Yeah. Um, and it takes place in England. And Timothy is a vanity publisher, and he published this man's autobiography, memoir, whatever, called Knuckle Sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> this guy is like a former cop, and the, the book's not doing well. And the beginning of the story takes place at this party where Timothy is with this author, this like rough cop character at a party. And there is the only reviewer who just shit all over this book. Yeah. And I don't think he's the only one, but maybe like the worst shitting on the book. 
I thought maybe in the book he said he was like the only one who reviewed it. I forget. Something made me think that. But this douchey critic is there and the copper guy played by Tom Hanks is super pissed off. And can I ask, is Tom Hanks accent good or bad? It's bad. (laughs) It feels like it's bad. Yeah. But he's also Tom Hanks. Yeah. And I just don't know if it's just weird seeing him do that accent. Yeah, it is kind of weird. But anyway, he throws <laughs> he throws the book critic off uh, a balcony and he dies. He explodes in the book when he hits in the or in, in the movie. He just like pops like a water balloon at the <laughs> bottom. It's very violent. But so the author goes to jail, obviously. But Timothy, the publisher, is now making bank off of this book because everyone's like, oh, shit, he committed a crime like publicity. Yeah. So he's making a lot of money. But then the author's family basically comes to him and is like, hey, bitch, give us our money. Yeah. And all this part in the movie was super rushed. Yeah. Like we knew what was going on, but I'm like, I would have no clue what was happening if I didn't read the book at this point. But they shake him down. They're like, we're going to beat the shit out of you if you don't give us 50000 tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have it. He doesn't have it. And so he decides to flee. Yeah. He goes to his brother and his brother's like, I have a place where you can lie low for a while. And he and his brother Go don't here. get along very well. No. <laughs> it's Hugh Grant plays the brother. God. And I just want to say the makeup in this movie is varied. Yeah. Uh, in the previous story, the guy who plays Sixsmith, mm-hmm. his old age makeup is great. Oh, that looks awesome. I couldn't even tell it was like the same actor yeah. as the story before. Like it was really well done. Hugh Grant looks like he's wearing a 10-pound rubber mask playing the brother. That is some thick Thick. facial makeup. And that's always, like, the key problem with, like, old age makeup is you're layering on. But really, as you get older, like, your face sinks and sags. It gets less. And that's always been a problem with old age makeup in movies. And this is the worst Maybe I've ever seen of it. Yeah, it's real bad. (laughs) Uh, Timothy goes to this hotel to lie low, signs in, and then wakes up the next morning to discover he has signed himself into a nursing home and they won't let him leave. (laughs) This had very, uh, what is it? One Uh, one Flew Over the the Cuckoo's cuckoo's Nest nest vibes. Yeah, where suddenly he's trapped and like the... um, the wards and the nurses and everyone are just like very abusive. And yeah, and like it's implied that this nursing home in particular is shady in its dealings in terms of like, if you want to make someone disappear, yeah, like we'll take them and basically imprison them. What's interesting is so in the movie, Timothy finds out that his brother did this on purpose. Yeah, because Timothy slept with his brother's wife. Uh, you suck, Timothy. And <laughs> but in the in the book, like, he finds out that his brother died Yeah. somewhere while he was at the nursing home. And so he's like, did my brother send me here on purpose? Was it a mistake? Like, what happened? And we never really find out. No, I guess that's, I never really thought about that because I still had the movie plot in my head. Yeah. That it was purposeful. But like, yeah, I guess it still could have been like unintentional. Yeah. But, but anyway, Timothy is like fucked. Yeah. And... It was a very, like, kind of sad part of the book. Just, like, getting really into, like, what we do with our elderly and kind of, like, shutting them out Mm -hmm. and locking them away. And 
How we view old age. Yeah. And I kept reading this and thinking like, it probably does feel this way to a lot of older people. Like they're captured and like locked away and they have like no rights anymore and they can't escape. Like it probably is very horror-ish in many ways. And I think this story captured that feel in a lot of ways, which I really appreciated. Absolutely. I liked that too. But what I didn't like was how shitty of a character Timothy was. Yeah, Timothy. He's um, constantly talking about how fat women are. Yes. And how he wants to bang them. And in one section, he talks about how one woman in particular, he wants to bang. And then he wants her to talk about how she views him as a father. That was so weird. I hated that. Yeah. So he sucks. He's also a racist. He called a black woman Nina Simone just because she's black. Yeah. He said he never can understand uh, Rastafarians because yeah. they confuse him. I did appreciate the one character calls him out on his racism in this story. Yeah. So it's at least like self-acknowledging like, hey, he's racist. I'm acknowledging he's racist, you know. So not that that like makes it more tolerable to read about. No. But at least it's not like, is this how the author feels or, you know what I mean? I had mixed feelings on this story. Like I would be enjoying parts And then Timothy would like say things that were offensive and annoying and would just be a total jerk. Mm -hmm. But then like the plot would get good again. So I don't know. Yeah, I weirdly maybe I'm like making excuses because he's old, which I, I don't honestly feel that way about anyone in real life. But like for some reason, I felt okay just kind of like moving past those annoying parts for some reason. So ultimately, I actually enjoyed this part of the story a decent bit. Okay. Uh, but essentially, it comes to a breakout story. An escape plan. An escape he with and, old um, people. Yeah, he and two others concoct this plan to escape the nursing home. They steal a car. They bust out. And they take Mr. Meeks with them, <laughs> who is this, like, cute uh, elderly man who apparently only says, I know, I know. <laughs> But then he surprises them. Yeah. And well, I was going to say, I loved this part in the movie. This was, I thought, one of oh, the most. Oh, this was a good part in the movie. This was like the most fun part of the movie that I was like genuinely like invested in was this like kind of fun old person escape plan. Yeah. And in the book, they purposely leave Mr. Meeks and then he just shows up in the car. Yeah. Which was like funny. But I loved in the movie. They go back for him. They go back for him. They I see know. he's like all packed and ready to go. And they turn the car around and like jeopardize the entire plan to go back for him. I know. And I really loved that. That I was loved like that too. That was like probably the biggest change in the story that I really loved in the movie. Yeah. It was just like a nice character moment for everyone that it was like they're all in it together. Yeah. And he, they go to this pub and then the nursing home staff show up and all hope seems lost and then they get this bar full of uh, Scotsmen <laughs> to turn on the nursing home staff in this epic bar fight. Yeah, Mr. Meeks finally, like, you know, gets all the Scotsmen angry about yeah. the Englishmen who are in there. <laughs> it was this great part. And I also loved how it tied into, like, the oppression theme again. Yeah. Like him riling up the Scottish people over this. Yeah. And, yeah, they start this absurd bar fight. It's super goofy. And this is like the goofiest part in the movie. Yeah. But for the most part, I was on board for it. Mm -hmm. You have Hugo Weaving dressed up as the nurse, the nurse, Nurse Snokes, which is just so wacky. Yeah. That I was like, do I like this? I don't know. I feel like it was kind of like um, 
Robin Williams as uh, Mrs. Doubtfire vibes. I don't know why. It was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Plus, obviously, uh, the nurse from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yes, Nurse, nurse Ratchet. Ratchet. Yeah. Yeah. But, so Timothy, they all escape, and then Timothy turns this story into a screenplay and turns it into a movie. And in the movie, we actually see snip, snippets of this movie that was made, <laughs> which has Tom Hanks as Timothy's character. Yeah, there is a great joke where. We actually see the clip from the Tom Hanks movie first where he's like, I shall not stand for this oppressive like regi- like yeah. he's giving this speech. And then later on in the movie, we see the actual scene with Timothy. Yeah. And he's just like, like fumbling over his like, words oh, I wanted you, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I loved that contra- contrasting of those parts. But yeah. And then Timothy also reads the mystery novel of. Louise's story in yeah. this story. He's like, oh, someone sent it to me to maybe get it published. Mm-hmm. So also in the movie, he hooks up with his lost love for some reason. <laughs> I know. I'm like, why? Yeah. She just shows up. I'm like, OK. She's like, I'm Susan Sarandon. <laughs> uh, but that's essentially the end of his story. All right. Let's get to the best story. The future. Sonmi's chapter. Sonmi 451. Mm-hmm. And... Wow, what a, uh, this was one of the densest parts oh, yeah. of the book. And, the way, well, of the book, I'll say. The way this story is told is Sonmi is being interviewed by this archivist who's recording her testimony, and it's clear that she's going to be executed. Yeah, and she's kind of explaining just like from the beginning what happened, and it's kind of like them just recording her story and figuring out everything. Yeah. And this story more than especially in the book is like very uh, it's kind of like a puzzle or a riddle Mm -hmm. where it's written in a very very interesting way where from her perspective the verbiage they use for things is very weird in this future world and it's like a clockwork orange yeah where there's slang or terminology and you don't know what it means at first it's not quite as heavy as a clockwork orange but it is kind of interesting in in the choices of language yeah and so like as you read like you get the gist she was a clone Mm -hmm. and a waitress in this restaurant facility that's a total call back to mcdonald's oh my god i know (laughs) because you don't you don't realize that until later when she's leaving and she notes the golden arches i know and you're like what (laughs) (laughs) it was mcdonald's the whole time yeah uh but yeah so she's at this restaurant and you just kind of like are piecing together like okay they drink society yeah they drink this substance they call soap and they don't really have any kind of like real original thoughts original thoughts or identity of themselves and they're kind of like put under control by the soap yeah and, and it, they're basically slaves yeah yeah and it, it is about uh Sonmi uh gaining as- ascension, ascension mm-hmm. where she finally starts to like understand her surroundings a bit more like the soap isn't working on her anymore. She's able to like pick up new words. Yeah. Start questioning things. Like critically think. Yeah. And like it's kind of changing her worldview like completely. Mm-hmm. Eventually she's taken to a university. Some other stuff happens in there, but it's a lot. Um, this and, is in the book. Yeah. And so 
it's revealed that like they're going to do experiments on her because she's one of the like few fabricants to reach ascension. And so she starts learning a lot in the movie. She's just taken to like this house where she learns things like an apartment. Yeah. And with like really bad CGI walls. The CGI was not re- good. was really shoddy at points in yeah. this story, which yeah, was I very agree. disheartening. But yeah, she's just in an apartment and he's like, here's a laptop. And she's like, OK, I'm going to learn everything. Yeah. <laughs> but the university part was interesting in the book. Yeah. Eventually, she's given kind of like more of a. Like, she becomes known as this ascended, um, what are they called? Fabricant. Fabricant. She's taking classes, and she's kind of being, like, tested to see if she keeps her intelligence. Yeah. And all seems to be going well. She meets this, like, quirky, cute boy mm-hmm. named... Heiju. Heiju. And things seem good until all fucking hell breaks loose. Yes. And... She also watches Timothy's movie. Oh, yeah, that's where she <laughs> is introduced to Timothy's uh, movie. And in the book, things go crazy and she has to escape with Heiju, mm-hmm. who is a secret covert union man spy. And union is like the resistance. Yes. This had very Matrix vibes. It did. and they're Especially in the movie. Quickly on the run. In the movie, she's just, <laughs> she's in her hotel learning about things when suddenly... The military shows up. Yeah. And thus begins the second worst plan in the entire movie. Make they, a bridge. They they have this crazy bridge contraption. They shoot out the window and he's like pushing Sanmi out onto this bridge, which has no railings. It's like a thousand feet in the air. Yeah. And she's like, I don't know anything. I can't walk on this. And he's like, come on. He's pushing her. The bridge goes nowhere, by the way. It just goes to like a blank wall. So where are they going? (laughs) And then they're being shot at. And then a ship shows up and they're just like in the in the air. Yeah. And I'm like, what was this plan? (laughs) What were they doing? Terrible plan. The worst plan ever. The worst escape plan ever. A literal rope. Out of the window. <laughs> would have been better. Would have been more effective and probably way cheaper. <laughs> so we need to talk about the Asian portrayals mm-hmm. in this scene. Because we have a lot of white people in Asian face, which is called yellow face. And this is horrible in many ways. Also, it looks bad. It looks so weird. It's like, like you can tell like... It's just in the uncanny valley. Yeah. Where you're like, this isn't right. This is weird. It doesn't look correct. And the Wachowskis have, you know, responded to this criticism because other people have been like, uh, this is fucked up. And basically have said, well, we have characters of different ethnicities portraying other characters of different ethnicities. They have an Asian woman portraying a Latina woman. They have Halle Berry portraying a white woman. They have a man portraying a woman. Um, They have Halle Berry portraying a man at one point, you know? So they're like, it's fine for us to have these white actors play Asian characters because we have like Asian and black characters playing other races. And to that, I say, well, then why don't you have anyone in blackface? Very Because they know point. that that's the line. And that should also be the line for Asian um, representation as well. Like, it's not okay. It's very offensive. 
it's really problematic. And I get what they're trying to do with like the souls kind of recurring through time, but it's not a good enough excuse. Well, and the problem is like you have in this story set in Korea, you only have one actor of the main cast who is Asian. Yeah. And the rest are white people being Asian. There's like four actors in this who are yeah. white people pretending to be Probably Asian. Probably more than that. We more, just didn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like very unbalanced, especially when then the actress who plays Sanmi only shows up in two other storylines. She's not even yeah. like, she doesn't even show up in every other storyline. No. Which I want to say, I think... So out of the six stories, each actor, there's a different actor in the lead character in each story. And I want to say all all of them show up in every story. Yeah. Except for Sonmi. Yeah. I'm fairly certain that she only shows up in a total of three Mm -hmm. when every other actor shows up in all six. I think there might be like a couple examples of some of them not being in like one. Maybe. But she definitely has the fewest. Yeah, and that goes for like a couple of the other actors of color. Yeah, they're not in. They're in a f- couple other stories, but like not all of them. So yeah. it feels more of a justification for like, oh, because we have the actress playing Sanmi as a white woman, we can have seven actors who are <laughs> white play all the parts in this Asian story. Yeah, and so it just, and I mean, I understand. So like the Wachowskis are two trans women. Yes. And I, they, they do have another story called Sense8 on Netflix that's about like very multicultural people from different like backgrounds, yeah. sexual preferences. And I do think they have an interest in like, not only like that kind of like, uh, like multicultural views and stuff, and also uh, like identifying differently like gender wise and things like that. I do yeah. think they have an interest in those themes so, like, part of me wants to be, like, maybe a little bit more forgiving. Like, it was a hit. And, like, it was a miss for sure. Yeah. I don't. They probably they definitely overreached with this, I think, if, you know, as a theme. But so I want to acknowledge that, like, I think maybe their intentions were maybe good in what they were trying to do. But it was just it was so bad. I agree. I agree that their intentions probably were good. And, you know, they wanted to make something about these themes. But yeah, it's just, it's not okay. And if they didn't think that that was fine, then someone else should have called them on it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were plenty of people that could have been like, hey, we can't have this in a movie. Yeah, just don't do it. Yeah. And And they did. And it's just so weird. It just looks (laughs) so distracting. Yeah. Like, as much as anything, it's just like, ah, (laughs) where are we? Sonny finds uh, the Soylent Green connection. Yeah, we she goes to in both versions in the movie. Just real quick. There's a whole other chase scene in action sequence. And I just want to say, like, the movie version of this story was like just an excuse for like really extended futuristic chase scenes and yeah. action sequences. <laughs> Definitely. And it was like, ugh. like, I get it. It's the most visually interesting in a way. Yeah. And most opportunity for that. But it's just like, come on. <laughs> it's just like so many. And uh, Heiju is just flipping around. Oh, yeah. He's like, definitely in the Matrix. He does so many <laughs> unnecessary flips. In flip, this flip, 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 fl
once she's freed in both versions on the run, they find the ship where the fabricants are being led to their slaughter. Yeah, it's just basically like a meat processing factory. They kill them and then they like take all their body parts and stuff. And you find out that they are actually feeding the clones the bodies of other clones. So, yeah. Soylent Green. Yeah. Which... It is funny. There is a reference in the Timothy story yeah. to Soylent Green. I liked he, that. I did too. He like says that like it's it's Soylent Green is people. <laughs> and then later in the book, we do find You're out like, oh. okay. I'm like, OK, I'm like, OK, I'm on board for that. Yeah. Unfortunately, so Sonmi sees this and realizes she wants to write a series of declarations um, kind of like a manifesto about the rights of clones, basically. In the movie, she does a broadcast and she kind of like, this is her chance to like speak out and maybe change the world. Um, then she's captured and executed. But in the book, we find out that actually the whole like resistance and Hey Jew and everyone that was like helping her escape and all this stuff was like an elaborate plot from the government to like set her up as a villain and then like cultivate anti-clone sentiment so people would fear her and so that they could like control things even more tightly. Yeah. And it's like, it was a little too much. What? Cause this was like in the last two pages yeah. of the story that she's like, Oh, by the way. Yeah. And I just get, I, I, I just guess I don't get anything out of that. No. Like this sudden twist that it was really all an elaborate conspiracy. I'm like, I mean, she says that, like, it doesn't matter because her declarations, her manifesto is still out there and it can change things. So she didn't care if it was, like, fake. Yeah. But I feel like it took us so long to, like, figure out what was happening in this world and only to have, like, the rug pulled out from under us, like, in the last few pages was a little, like, what? Yeah. I don't know. I I, I totally agree. I was just like, uh, this was a really good story. I didn't really need this twist at the end. Yeah. But it is what it is, I guess. It is interesting. Yeah. And yeah, and she requests at the end to finish the Timothy story that she was watching as a movie. So that's how it in the end, it goes back to the Timothy story, which is interesting. Yeah. But let's go to the most post future. (laughs) The most post. Post (laughs) Post-apocalyptic. It's interesting because in Sunmi's future, we get references to like the world being like kind of polluted and maybe dying. Yeah. And then in this story, it's clear that the earth has kind of breathed its last. (laughs) Yeah. There's just like, so this story takes place on Hawaii. Yeah. And there's actually like villages and civilization here to an extent. It's very primitive, primitive, Mm -hmm. but it is working well enough. Yeah. And, but there are allusions to like other places where like, it's toxic. The soil is burned. Like yeah. the oceans have boiled over and like basically everywhere else but Hawaii sucks. Yeah. Uh, kind of like it is now. Like Hawaii's <laughs> the best currently. <laughs> it will remain the best in, in the post-apocalyptic we future. We know the future. <laughs> the main character is Zachary, uh, played by Tom Hanks in the movie. And the first part of the story, we see his family members um, being killed by this cannibalistic, awful tribe that also lives on the island that is just the worst. Yeah, what do they call them? The Kona. The Kona. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so when Zachary is, like, young, 
he and he kind of blames himself because he was being chased by them. He kind of led them back to the camp where his dad and brother were. Yeah. So they're killed. And this is something that like haunts him now. Mm-hmm. And he's not only haunted <laughs> by the ideas the regrets. and the regrets, but literally haunted by old Georgie. Old Georgie, which in the book, we're led to believe that this is the the valley people's idea of the devil. So they actually view Sonmi as a god. Yeah. So she's their goddess. She's the one that guides them. And they have her like teachings that they live by. And then old Georgie is the devil, basically. And the movie chooses to portray old Georgie <laughs> as a rotting Victorian gentleman. <laughs> Played by Hugo Weaving. He's like green. Yeah. And... With a top hat. With a top hat. Like rotting Abraham Lincoln. Yes. And I'm just like, where is the... Part of me thinks they were trying to connect the movie to the first part. Maybe. Kind of like bringing it full circle. Like, oh, this is more like old timey, like 1800s kind of aesthetic. Maybe. <laughs> but it's super weird. And this was another part where I'm like, if I was watching this movie... I'd be like, what the fuck is happening? What the fuck is going on right now? I would yeah. be so confused and weirded out. Let's also talk about the dialect. Yes. So this is another... The writing in this part of the story is written in a very weird way that takes a bit to get used to. Yeah. But it's kind of like a Clockwork Orange where it is. you keep reading it and reading and you get used to it and then you start to like be able to read it really easily. You know the words. You picked up on, you know, the shorthand for everything. And so you get it. And that's what happened reading this portion. Yeah. Words are contracted and cut off with apostrophes a lot. Yeah. So for example, Zachary is actually Z-A-C-K apostrophe R-Y, yeah. for example. And like a lot of words are chopped up and broken up like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did they call Hawaii? Hawi or something? Yeah. Like there's a lot of things like that where at first you read it and you may be like, what is happening? What? I don't quite get it. This is weird. Uh, a good example of this is when I was reading it, I accidentally skipped two pages oh, no. i like flipped one too many pages and so it was a weird jump in what was kind of happening but it made enough sense and i'm like oh this is weird but i kept reading oh no <laughs> and luckily because i'm an idiot and i don't use a bookmark later when i went to find where i was i actually found those pages and i was like wait what <laughs> i was like oh fuck and i was like oh my that God. makes so much sense now but like that's a good example of like it's written in such a weird way that I skipped two pages and I like went with it. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You're like this is fine. I was like, it's weird, but okay. I do have to point out though, because the movie chops up all the narratives and stories, you never have a chance to get used to the dialect. No. So you yeah. never have the opportunity. And this is the story that is told in its entirety in the book. So it's not divided at all. It's just a full portion. So you really get to like immerse yourself in it and you get used to the dialect, which I think is a smart choice on the author's part. But in the movie, you're like, what the fuck are they saying? The whole movie, I had no idea what they're saying. I never could understand never. what Tom Hanks or Halle Berry were saying. Like no. the entire time. The entire time. It was so hard to follow. And also it just... Made me think of like Forrest Gump a lot, yeah. like the way Tom Hanks is talking. <laughs> Unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. So this was the worst aspect of this future part was just the dialect because I just couldn't understand anything. Yeah. And like when old Georgie shows up, like 
the vocal effect on him. Yeah, I couldn't understand what he was couldn't saying. Couldn't understand either. what he was saying. <laughs> he can't understand what anyone's saying, basically. <laughs> and maybe if it was one continuous part, like you said, we would have gotten an ear for it. Yeah. Like when you're watching like a movie with like an accent, like yeah. a British accent, like it's hard at first, but then you're like, okay, I got the ear for it. Mm-hmm. You don't get that chance. No. This. So this little civilization is here. And then Marinim, who is like, from this advanced civilization comes to like live with the tribe for a bit. And at first Tom Hanks character, Zachary is like super suspicious of her. Doesn't trust her. But then she ends up saving his sister or his niece in the movie um, from this illness. And so he trusts her and then they go, they climb up the, one of the mountains in Hawaii together because there's an old um, building observatory observatory from before civilization fell. And it's interesting because, like, the book, we never really get a specific justification for this. No. She just kind of wants to, like, explore it, map it, see what's up there, kind of, like, for her research. Yeah. But in the movie, we get a much more specific reasoning, which is that uh, Halle Berry says that, I'm sorry, Marinim, (laughs) says that uh, before the fall, there were off-world colonies that were established. Yeah. And they want to get in touch with them. Because Earth is dying, and they're like, we need to get the fuck off earth basically yeah, it's, it's done <laughs> so she, they go up the mountain together and she ends up sending a signal and is like well hope something happens basically i don't love the whole earth is fucked we got to get out of here's plot line Me either but i do like there being a little bit more of a purpose in their journey yes and what's going on i do like that aspect because it was it. kind of purposeless she was like yeah let's go up here let's just check it out let's just see yeah and uh, Zachary's like, the literal devil lives up there. <laughs> <laughs> and the devil keeps trying to get him to kill Marinim. I don't know. That was actually the part in the book I accidentally skipped over when oh. he tried to kill her. And so I was like, oh, I guess he just didn't want to anymore. <laughs> it, was, it was like so perfectly captured on those two pages that like when I flipped, I was like, oh, I guess he just doesn't want to. <laughs> but when they get back down from the mountain, um, the Kona, which is that evil cannibalistic tribe, ends up destroying um zachary's village and enslaving and killing most of his family and people it's really sad and i think this kind of goes back to the first story where the moriori are enslaved by the maori yeah and so when we were reading that first part and it was like talking about like the savages and being very much from an old white perspective on indigenous people I was going along with it at first because I'm like, I know kind of what this book is about and I want to see if they like subvert this idea later. And in a way they do by kind of giving us that native perspective. Yeah. But the problem is that in this future story, the people visiting the, um, what are they called? The The, Prussians. The Prussians are like super cool and chill and like, yeah. Marinim is to- so like a total badass and is awesome. And like, they're just fine. And I'm like, that does not ring true. No. Like the fact that like this visiting population is like, hey, we would like to we live come here. In peace. If yeah. you're cool with that, like if you're not, we'll totally leave. Like, yeah, they're way too cool. And I'm like, I really feel like it just doesn't feel accurate in any kind of a way. Mm-hmm. So that. That I had a little bit of an issue with. I think the theme here is that people are shit. Yeah. Um, because um, in the first story, we learned that the Moriori um, 
were very peaceful and they didn't kill each other. Mm-hmm. And the Maori, because of that, were able to like exploit them and destroy yeah. them more. And we have the same thread in this story where the Valley people, which is Zachary's people, they are very peaceful and they think murder is wrong. And then the Kona are clearly like cannibals and evil. And so they exploit that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I do like that. I do like that kind of repeating theme that bookends the story and movie. And I guess not technically bookends, but you know, yeah. Um, that repetition and that echoing. Mm-hmm. I, I do like it. I just felt like the whole Prussian people thing. Like I was waiting for some kind of twist. Yeah. Something and, more interesting, maybe. Yeah. And maybe it was trying to subvert that idea. But on the other hand, it just felt like unrealistic. Marinim ends up saving Zachary from the Kona. Like a badass. Like a badass, because she's great. Um, And then we get a huge divergence from the book and the movie. In the book, uh, Tom Hanks' character, Zachary, I don't know why I mentioned Tom Hanks from the book. (laughs) In the book, Zachary ends up living on another island with another people and never sees Marinim again. And we don't really know what happened to Marinim and the Prescience because she tells him before she goes that like the Prescience are also dying off. Like there's a plague. Mm-hmm. So the future of Earth is very uncertain. In Which the, I think is interesting. I do too. Yeah. It's, it's just kind of like we may have totally screwed it up beyond repair. Yeah. Like it may be done. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Maybe we deserve it. The movie um, is a little more out there where... Uh, Zachary and Marinim go to the other planets together. Yeah. And in the film, they're the same age, so they get married and they bang. (laughs) (laughs) They bang. They bang out a couple kids. Yeah. And get grandkids. And then Tom Hanks is like old, scarred Zachary (laughs) telling this story on a distant planet. Yeah. I did kind of like the larger scope of the things Mm -hmm. from like this other planet perspective. Like, it was interesting. I, it, it was. I just kind of liked that widening of the scope of the story in a way. Yeah. But it is also sadder in the book because like literally everyone in his family's dead. Yeah. And at least in the movie, his like niece is still alive. Yeah. And they get to take her. And he bangs Marinim. And he bangs Marinim. But in the book, it's much kind of bleaker. But in a way, I kind of just appreciate that in terms of like, hey, like, Shit sucks sometimes. Yeah. You know? Humans suck. Humans suck. Yeah. That's all you need. I kind of want to talk just a little bit here, and I think this is a good spot, just like about the filmmaking of the movie. Yeah. Outside of the editing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I think that uh, there are parts of this movie that look good, but ultimately more parts of it felt cheap looking than good. And I felt like this, especially in the... Uh, the po- the most post part uh, with Zachary. <laughs> yeah. Like, they just felt like people in costumes running around in the woods. And maybe it was, like, the coloring. Maybe it was the editing. I can't quite put my finger on what made it feel kind of cheap. Mm-hmm. But I also felt that way in the uh, other future part. Yeah. It felt like a lot of green screen, a lot of cheap effects. And I'm just, like, it's very disappointing because other parts of the production in the movie are very good. Uh, like Adam's part with the old ship and stuff looks really nice. Yeah. And other um, parts of the movie have a really high production value that I really appreciated. But then especially these future parts just kind of felt cheap. And I did not 
love them. No, I didn't either. And it's, it is hard to put your finger on it. But yeah, there's something about overuse of CGI is definitely a problem. Yeah. Also, all those oval floating screens yeah. that they're always looking at in the movie. I'm like, what? Stop. And like <laughs> Marinim, like flicking keyboards. Oh, so like, yeah. Beep, boop, beep, boop, like that kind of thing. Future. Future. <laughs> so. So what are our thoughts? I mean, I don't have to think about this for more than a second. I liked the book a lot better. I did too. I admire what the movie tried to do. Yeah. But I don't think it delivers. Uh, it's three hours. Three and hours. I don't understand what people are saying in some parts of it. Um, and it's very confusing. The, the pacing is just like monotonous. It never lets up. You just can't really follow or feel invested in any of the stories. Like you get no time to be with these characters. No. Because it jumps around so much that you can never relax with them, see them in a moment of like vulnerability or just like existing. It yeah. just always feels like, okay, on to the next thing, on to the next thing, on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. And it just got so exhausting. Yeah. And what I like about the book is that there is a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty and things aren't like super clear cut and like, with a bow tied on it. And it feels like the movie does that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. What I think is interesting about the book is like, yes, this soul could be like reincarnated with the birthmark, but also each story may or may not be real. And I love yeah, that idea. Yeah, I do too. Like, cause each story is nested within another story and there's doubt placed on the authenticity of these narratives. Yeah. So I think it has a lot to say about writing, about storytelling, about history even. Yeah. How, you know, what we view as history, you know, may or may not be 100% true. And I really love that idea that all of these stories, yes, can be true. And it's the same soul reincarnating. Or it could be that all of these stories are not real. Yeah. And it even gets real meta at one point in... Robert's story as he's writing the Cloud Atlas sextet yeah, and thinking about the way it's constructed. He's like, is this gimmicky or is it genius? And he's like, I guess time will tell. And it's yeah. like, and that might have been a little too on the nose, but I did in the context of like, like what you were saying, the themes of story and stuff like it being self-reflective yeah. is another interesting layer to add on to it. Mm-hmm. I do think there are times it makes unnecessary connections. It yeah. maybe is a little too clever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and especially like with the reincarnation thing. Yeah. But ultimately I did think it was really interesting. And I just, I love the idea of like these stories being paired with each other and I think we maybe talked about this with Slumdog Millionaire mm-hmm. and the book it was based on Q&A because the book like this is about someone's life, but it's a series of like short stories mostly. Yeah. And when you do that, when you pair short stories, especially in this where like the stories are wildly different. Yeah. The th- like the, the they're written totally differently and have different genres, but it kind of makes you like compare them and contrast and be like okay what are the themes what are the what are the through lines yeah what are the commonalities between these stories and it just makes you think that think about that a lot more Mm -hmm. so the book has a lot of good things if you pick it up push through the first part yeah just read through that adam part like hardcore skim go back to it if you want to later but like yeah yeah the adam part is my least favorite story especially at that beginning part god 
once you get through that, it gets a lot better. Yeah. And ultimately, I really enjoyed this book. And I just felt like an accomplishment from finishing it, too. Yeah, it did feel like you finished something really interesting. Yeah. And unique. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So book from both of us. Book from both of us. All right. I'm going to read a small uh, snippet from Jeffrey's review of this. Oh, yeah. Because I want to share. So let's see. He said, uh, of the six stories, the top two for me were um, the letters of Zettelheim, which is uh, Robert's part, and the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish. So it's ghastly. Ghastly, that's it. The characters were full of accessibility to me and drawn with particular emotional wisdom. I was quite moved by how these were laid out. Their worlds could be said to be the most accessible to a reader in 2019. And then he said, in Cloud Atlas, no matter the story and setting, there are recurring themes in each story in the central character's sense of enslavement and exploitation. We readers witness each protagonist's struggle to survive or challenge the world they find themselves in, usually alone. It works on a variety of, variety of levels. You sort of realize each story is coming to this. And he also says, David Mitchell is a demanding author, unafraid of writing difficult stretches of text, and I guess he sees readers' potential to get the big picture. Um... He later says that he liked the movie in the context of having finished the book. Yeah. So appreciated the perspective the movie offered him then. But he also says that when he first watched the movie that he initially walked out of the theater (laughs) because he just didn't understand it because he didn't have any context. So I think that's really important to point out is that without the context of the book, the movie kind of doesn't make sense. I was really happy to hear that he had seen the movie first and that was his reaction because I remember watching the movie and I'm like, if I wasn't made to watch this right now or had the context of the book, I'm like, I might shut this off. Yeah. And I rarely ever do that. No. I almost always finish a movie, but I'm like, I would maybe walk out of a theater yeah. if I saw this. Also want to give one shout out to Jeffrey. He has a podcast called The Attentionist. So if you're interested, he does link it in this uh, document that we're going to post online. Yeah, so, definitely check it out. Yeah. So let's do lightning round now. Yeah, lightning Okay, so first for Lightning, I hadn't seen the movie until we watched it for this episode. Yeah. But for years now, I've been aware of the trailer for it Mm -hmm. because I've watched this trailer many times because it is one of the best trailers for a movie in terms of like capturing my interest. Yeah. And like just having this great vibe where it's, it's like a five minute long trailer. I'll, we'll post it on social yeah. media and everything and probably link to it on Patreon. But like definitely watch it. It's kind of like it's like a mood board. Yeah. Essentially. Or a Pinterest board of like <laughs> what I wish this movie, how I wish it felt. Yeah. While watching it, where it's just like all the it even makes the cinematography look better. Like it's all these great shots. Some of the best lines in the movie And then the second half of it is set to the song Outro by M83. And it's such a great, like, kind of rock anthem, uplifting, motivational feel. Yeah. And it's, like, such a good trailer (laughs) that I was like, oh, this movie's probably so good. I really want to watch it. Like, the trailer's so great. Oh, my God. And the fact that they made that trailer from (laughs) this movie. I know. I mean, it's not surprising because a trailer doesn't have to tell a story, but no, it's got great vibes. And I suggest everyone watch that trailer and then probably skip the movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted to do a summary of some of the weird sex stuff in the book. And this is not all of it because there's like a lot. But 
One thing, in Robert's portion, when he starts sleeping with the composer's wife, he compares having sex with her to her being like a horse. Oh, yeah. He talks about her being a horse a lot. It's so <laughs> weird. And then in Sonmi's part, we're led to believe that the clone fabricants don't have vaginas. Yeah. Or like they can't have sex for some reason. Maybe they don't have genitals at all. Or like something is wrong. But they do have sex. They, she does have sex. But they said that it was improvised sex, which uh, is interesting to me. Yeah. And then the other sex thing I want to mention is in the Zachary post-apocalyptic crazy dialect future. It's Zachary <laughs> having sex with this girl. And he says it like this. I was slurpy in her lustsome managos and moistly fig. <laughs> He was just slurpy in her fig. Oh, my God. (laughs) I cracked up so hard when I read that. I'm like, that's the most graphic, not graphic sex scene I've ever read in a book before. (laughs) Uh, Adina. Yes. So we've talked about our issues with like the Sanmi story. Yes. Only featuring like one Asian character pretty much. And the rest were like people in Asian face. Yeah. Well, I'm here to tell you that originally the role of Sanmi was originally committed, was going to go to Natalie Portman. What? Yup. Oh my God. Seriously? Yeah. Did she like sign on to it so or what happened? What happened was the Wachowskis uh, produced V for Vendetta. And yeah. on the set of V for Vendetta, Natalie Portman was the one who first gave them cloud atlas the book and wow. was like this is really good and they read it and loved it and for a long time she was tied to it and was gonna play son me oh my god and the only thing that stopped it was she got pregnant oh my god That's and they crazy. were like well if we have to recast her maybe <sighs> we should get an asian actress for this story set in korea I mean, you wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt, and they were going to even cast on me as Natalie I forgot Portman. about that. <laughs> I was saying that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I did forget about that. So maybe. Wow, that's I, crazy. I give them less credit. <laughs> Isn't that wild? That is so wild. Oh, my God. When I read that, I was sitting beside you, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> I love when you don't tell me things, and then you tell me in the episode. I know, right? <laughs> so I have another interesting fact to share with you that you might not know so this was originally published in the uk because david mitchell is a british author and then it was published in the u.s because like they had to do a u.s edition and the two versions are like very different what really yeah because apparently like his agent or editor that was working on the american version like left And then it like sat for a few months and then someone else like picked it up and started working on it. And in that time, David Mitchell had worked with his UK editor to like change things in the story. Oh, so the UK version is different from the US version, especially in the sewn me parts. Really? Yeah. And I actually found a scholarly article about it that discusses the differences. Oh, man. And there's like charts, pictures, all this stuff. Um, but it's available. It's like freely accessible online. So yeah. I'm definitely going to link it on our Patreon. Check it out. If you would like to read a scholarly article on the differences between the US and UK editions of this book, because it's actually really interesting. I am so interested. Like, yeah. I can't wait to read that. <laughs> so isn't that fascinating? It is. Man. Well, 
that was a, a very good lightning round, I think. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening to mm-hmm. this episode. If you've seen Cloud Atlas, what do you think? Yeah, please tell us your thoughts. Like, what happened? <laughs> we still don't know. According to you. And if you've read the book, let us know your book thoughts, too, because yeah. uh, it's such an interesting book, too. Mm-hmm. Special shout out again to Jeffrey Little, our patron, for suggesting this episode. Thank yeah. you, Jeffrey. Um, please follow us on Twitter. We're at cover two credits with the number two. We are on Facebook and Instagram, and you can email us at cover to credits pod at gmail.com with two spelled the normal way in that one. And then check us out on Patreon too. Yeah. Uh, for our patrons, we do bonus episodes where if a book has multiple adaptations, we'll talk about another adaptation in a bonus episode. Yeah. And of course, we also post uh, the monthly schedules ahead of time so you know what's coming down the line. Yeah. And honestly, we just we'd rather create a stronger Patreon community than doing things like ads. Yeah. And so if you do listen to the podcast and you do enjoy it, uh, please consider uh, contributing. We like not having ads. Yeah. Uh, because it makes just for a more streamlined, better episode, I'd say. Plus, and I don't agree with Audible. <laughs> I, I know. We did a couple ads for Audible and then we we're like, mm, maybe not anymore. So, uh, but so please uh, consider uh, contributing on Patreon. We would greatly appreciate it and will help us keep ads away from the episodes. Yes. And we love our patrons so much. And if you can't contribute, please consider giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That also helps to get our name out there and to get other people listening. Yeah. And uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next episode. See you next time. Bye. Bye.